0: I suppose that every preacher that I know of, at some point in time, tries to think about what they need to preach, when they need to preach it, and the kind of lessons that might tie in to something that is going on in the world or in the community in which they're laboring. And tonight, I thought it would be valuable for us to talk about Jesus and how he looked at the gifts If you'll notice on the photograph that's before you, you will see people placing money into a metal horn, actually called a trumpet, that goes into a chest or into a box. Now while you're thinking about that, as well as Brother Joe read to us just a few moments ago, we often think about our looking at Jesus and evaluating him. When we've been studying from the Gospel of John over the past few weeks on Sunday morning, many people have been looking at Jesus and looking at his life and all the proofs and saying, Is this the Christ? Is this the Son of God? And in a real sense, there's an evaluation on our part. I don't think quite often we realize that the Lord looks back at us and is evaluating us. What are we doing? How are we acting? what are we saying, what are we doing, and evaluating our lives. Sort of to go along with the time of year, at this time of year we often see people giving gifts to others. And whether we want to admit it to ourselves or even to others, we mentally evaluate what we see other people give. I can see my family sitting around and... uh, Someone gives a gift and you're thinking in your mind, boy, that sure was cheesy. That wasn't much. On the other hand, you see someone give a gift and you say, wow, what happened this year? Why did they give so generously? And what made them you know, have this spurt of generosity? We evaluate that in our mind. Now, like I said, you may not admit it, but we do that. An event occurred near the end of Jesus' personal ministry that should cause each of us to pause and think about what the Lord saw as he looked at the gifts that were being given. It's going to be a very simple lesson. It's not going to be real long tonight, and it's going to be where Jesus sat, what Jesus saw, and what Jesus said, all taken from that passage where Brother Joe... I read for us just a few minutes ago. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, verse 41 again. And if you'll notice the first part of that, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite of the treasury. And you read that and you think, well, what does that mean? You know, in our giving today, we have these little uh, chrome plates that we pass around. And we would say, that's giving, but where does the money go and how is it collected? Well, If you think back during the biblical times, the temple had a number of courts around it. There was the larger court, the court of the Gentiles, and then there was another court of women, and then there was the court of the men or Jews, and various people could only go in certain portions of it. For instance, the court of the Gentiles, a Gentile could enter that part. It was in the court of the women where there were a number of these treasuries located. In fact, we study from the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition, that tells us the size of it was 200 feet by 200 feet, roughly the size of your lot if you live in town. That's usually, they're about 150 to 200 feet wide or long. To give you some kind of idea, this is the model that's found in Jerusalem. And you'll see the the whole temple complex and there's a colonnaded area around it. That area that's on the outside, the larger part, is known as the court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus, when he cleansed the temple and drove the money changers, those who were selling animals out, that's where they were located, that large area there. But if you'll notice right in front of the temple building, you'll notice there's a court. In fact, if you zoom in... Right in front of the Nicanor gates, there's that open area right there you see just before those steps go up. That's known as the court of the women. And that colonnaded area around there is where the treasuries were located. And so if I'm reading Mark's account, and Mark said, Jesus sat opposite of the treasury, there's one of those boxes with one of those horns sticking up, and that's where he's sitting and watching what people are doing. The treasury consisted of thirteen chests. They were known as trumpets. The reason being is because of that metal fluted area that come up out of it, so that people could easily cast their money in, and it would go into the chest. In fact, if you want to read the history of it, you go back to Second Kings twelve and verse nine, and it says, "Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar." On the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord and the priest who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So I don't think it's very difficult to visualize what is taking place here. It's very interesting though that the Lord uses a play on words because even Josephus tells us these were called trumpets. When you read Matthew 6 and verse 2, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Do not sound your trumpet. Now, he's thinking of someone who would blow a horn, make a noise, but there's the play on words because the trumpet also was recognized as being that area where they would place their money in. as you would place the money in, the metal against the metal would tink, 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 depending upon how much a person was putting in. Now, second of all, what did Jesus see? go to verse 42 it says the latter part of verse 41 and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many people who were rich put in much then one poor widow came in and threw in two mites which make a quadrants now um, I want you to notice carefully the wording that is used here in Mark's account he saw how they put in money not how much. In fact, that's not the word that he uses. He uses the word the way, the manner that they were doing that. Evidently, some people were doing it in such a way that it was drawing attention to themselves. Could you imagine if what we did, rather than passing the plate around by each one, is that we had a, a box up here on the table, and is it come time to make our contribution? Some people came up and is everybody looking? Putting the money in? I want you to see it. Others may come and hold their hand over and real quietly drop it in. You see, the Lord's watching how, but if you will notice what he follows up with, he says that the rich put in much. What they're probably putting in is silver and gold, which would have been much heavier than the other coins. You can imagine the noise of here's a man brings a bag of coins and, and he is now dumping it into these uh, trumpets, the noise it would make. I saw a gentleman on television who paid his fine the other day in pennies. He decided he was going to go and he comes to the counter where the lady's at and he dumps five-gallon bucket after five-gallon bucket of it Of course, they had to contact him and tell him he had overpaid by $7 and some few cents. And he told him, just keep the change. (laughs) But I thought it was interesting. As I was watching that man pour those coins, I was preparing for this lesson. I was thinking, here's a guy who's got a big sack, and he's pouring coins. He's pouring coins. The rich put in much. But what else he saw was a widow lady. And she came, and she put in two mites. If you don't know what a mite is, I passed one around a few times in the classes. If you'll take the very end of your little finger for the diameter there, that's about the size of these. They're copper coins. They're not gold or not silver. We see that they're worth a farthing, or if you're reading the New King James uh quadrants, but that doesn't tell us much, but I can tell you the, the equivalency of it, it was 2% of a day's wage. So you can calculate what you think you make in a day's time, and 2% of that is what these mites would have been worth. We would say just a matter of cents, like pennies, so to speak, being a copper coin. And I can assure you that as this lady put in those two little small light copper coins, they drop them in, tink, tink, if they made any noise whatsoever. You see, the Lord was looking and that's what he saw among them. But the Lord looked and said, you know, they're putting in out of their abundance and she put in all, which leads me to the third part of that is. Well, before we go to that, let me uh, address one other thing. Often the rich seek recognition for their gifts. If you don't believe that's true, just look at the names that are put on buildings, especially on college campuses. Public recognition is given for large donations. If someone gives a lot to a good cause, their name is often listed as one of the primary donors. People get recognition for what they do. Rich often display their wealth in their clothes and their jewelry they wear. And you see here, Jesus is observing these people. That's what he saw. But I think it's important to note that when it came to paying these alms, some of them were obligatory. In fact, nine of those trumpets were what you were legally obligated to give. And four of them were set aside for the free will giving. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 30 and he's talking about what you would give. And he's talking about the redemption that every one or the ransom that each one would give for themselves. He says, you take a census of the children of Israel for their number. Then every man shall give a ransom of himself for the Lord. When you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one of those who are numbered shall give a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a shekel is 20 gerahs. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. Now listen carefully to verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You see, there was, if you want to call it a tax, a flat tax. Everybody paid the same thing. Rich and poor alike. You see, the Lord never intended that this would be used as something to display one's wealth. Must have been a great contrast between the two groups. This poor little widow woman, she would not have even been noticed by most people. In Proverbs chapter 28 verse 11, the rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding searches him out. Poor little widow woman, the Lord saw her. Now what did Jesus say? You look where he's sitting, you look what he saw, but now what did he say? Let's look at verses 43 and 44. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given into the treasury, for they have put in out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, when you start looking at givers, sometimes it appears that what some people give is insignificant. Sometimes an an elderly person who's on a very fixed income and maybe has very little opportunity to increase their giving will give proportionally more than anyone else. The Lord looked not so much at the amount she gave but the attitude that she gave it with. In fact... What does it mean to be generous and liberal in our giving? Well, I'd like to explore some passages with you. What does the Lord say about generous givers? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. With this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then he follows up by saying, so let each of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The generous giver to the Lord is a man who says, I want to give to the Lord. He's a cheerful giver. He's not squeezing on that money, holding and said, do I have to give? no that's the way you're giving, it means nothing at all. In 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 24, do you remember David as he numbered the children of Israel and the sin that he committed in doing so? And how he was going to have to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And he goes to Ornan's threshing floor and he wants to buy it from him to give an offering to the Lord. And here's the way he responds to him. Then King David said to and No, but I will surely buy it of you for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings of that which cost me nothing. You see, Ornan was going to give David the threshing floor. He was going to say, You can have it. You don't even have to pay for it. David said, I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. I've got to give something. I want to be a part of it. So many people today don't realize when we give, we need to give God because it takes something from us. It shows a sacrifice on our part. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and then in verse 12, Paul again is talking about the same thing he was in 2 Corinthians 9, and he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave themselves to God. And then giving was not a problem. Then you drop down to verse 12. For where there is, if there is a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. God is not asking people to give what they do not have. You don't put a guilt trip on people and say, you've got to give this amount when they don't have that amount. This poor widow only had two mites. When you go to Isaiah 32, verses 5 and 8, For the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. Verse 8, but a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he will stand. You know, we often see people who are misers. And quite often they're the ones who will not give because they want to hoard it to themselves. He said, you're not going to call that man bountiful. What you're going to do is call a man who plans his generosity, devises generous things first Peter 4 and nine says be hospitable one another without grumbling proverbs 11 25 says the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters himself will be watered himself he who has a generous eye will be blessed for he gives of his bread to the poor all these pictures giving of a man who is trying to be generous of heart and then acts 20 verse 35 You remember Paul's meeting with the elders from Ephesus. And he's trying to explain what all he tried to do in serving the church. And he said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing that one gets from giving because you want to give and you love to give to God. You can see what Jesus is saying in this. The truth is God gave his best to us. John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You look at Second Corinthians 9 and verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift so great of a gift. What we return to him ought to come from a grateful heart. You can picture that woman going into that treasury, putting in those two mites, thankful to God that he had taken care of her with faith that God would continue to do so. But the greatest gift that you and I can give God It's not the money that's in our pockets. That will come. But the greatest gift that you and I can give to God is the giving of ourselves. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and do not, or verse 1, but he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, not only as we'd hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Wouldn't it be great tonight that as we study a lesson like this, somebody's thinking, I need to make the decision now to go ahead and give myself to the Lord. I need to make my decision tonight to say, I'm going to commit my life to the Lord in becoming a Christian. Paul expressed it like this in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would it not be important to you because you believe in God to come forward and say, I'm sorry for the sins I've committed. I want to express to this audience my faith in Christ. I believe that he is the Son of God, and I'd like to be baptized. I can tell you there's no greater thing that I would enjoy seeing tonight than to see a new brother or a new sister in Christ. But I recognize the majority of this audience, those of us who are Christians. And I know when we get to the end of a sermon, you say, okay, it's time for him to extend the invitation. It's time for us to sing the song. But there are some times that those of us who are struggling in this world need the prayers of our brothers and sisters. We need to be forgiven. We need to ask God's forgiveness, and we need to ask for the help and the assistance of our brothers and sisters. And if that's who you are tonight... That's a privilege we enjoy together as a family of God. If you need to come, would you come as we stand together and sing?